Welcome to the second half of this particular episode of Words and Movies. Did you enjoy your break? I did. Did you? Yes. Yes, I did. Okay. So now we're going to talk about The Secret in Their Eyes. And Claude's going to give us the plot description for that one right now. Yes, indeed. So we open with a man writing a story. And he doesn't like what he's written, so he abandons it. Then he tries a different story, and he bails out on that, too. Then he tries a third time with a third story, and he gives up on that as well. The author, we soon learn, is Benjamin Esposito. He's played by Ricard Derren, and it's not long before we learn that he's working on different aspects of the same story. It's 1999, and Esposito is a retired police detective. He's trying to write a book about the case of his life, but clearly he's having trouble getting it down. He's adopted a writer's strategy of keeping a notepad by his bedside, and one morning he wakes up to find that he had written the word TEMO, T-E-M-O, which means I fear. He doesn't know what to make of that. Esposito pays a visit to an old friend of his, uh, Irina Menendez Hastings, a lawyer with whom he worked back in the day and who's still on the job. She's played by uh, Soledad Villamil, and she offers him a little bit of advice and also an old typewriter from back when they worked together. The typewriter was broken then, and it's broken now. Specifically, the A key doesn't work, so it's leaving a hole in all the words that have an A in them. But it's better than the handwritten manuscript he's been working with, so he accepts the gift and just writes in the A's where he needs to. At this point, we start jumping back and forth between 1974 and 1999, but I'm going to stick with the 1974 timeline. Back in that day, a young woman named Liliana was brutally raped and murdered inside her house in a Buenos Aires neighborhood. Uh, Her husband, who was a bank employee named Ricardo Morales, and he's played by uh, Pablo Rago, he is shocked by the news, of course. Uh, Esposito wants to find the killer and bring him to justice. He's working with his alcoholic assistant, Pablo Sandoval, who is played by Guillermo Franchella and a newcomer, uh, lawyer uh, Irene Menendez Hastings, who is taking over as department chief. Actually, she wasn't Hastings yet. She was just Irene Menendez. Esposito's uh, rivaling rom- rival Romano, who is played by Mariano Argento, he pins the murder on two immigrant workers just to get rid of the matter. But Esposito realizes that the workers were coerced into confessing and he and Romano get into a fight. Esposito finds a tip while looking over some old photos that Morales provided to him, and he comes across a young man who was later identified as Isidoro Gomez, who is looking at Liliana in a suspicious way in several photos. Esposito investigates the whereabouts of Gomez and determines that he is living and working in Buenos Aires, but he can't find him. Esposito and Sandoval break into Gomez's household in the city of Chivilcoy, which is the hometown of both Gomez and Liliana. During this illegal search, they accidentally steal a set of letters written by the suspect to his mother. And when they return to Buenos Aires, they get in a world of trouble with their boss. And what's worse, neither of them can make anything out of the letters. In addition, Gomez remains at large because of a careless phone call made by Morales, who is desperate to catch his wife's killer. In the end, it is Sandoval who comes across a new lead. A fellow drinker in the bar identifies the various names mentioned in the letters as being those of various soccer players of racing club. So, after identifying him as a racing club fan, Esposito and Sandoval attend soccer matches, and they finally find one where Racing Club is playing against Huracan in the hope of catching Gomez. They manage to spot him among the crowd, but a goal on the pitch provides enough disturbance in the crowd for Gomez to slip away. Gomez nearly gets away, but ultimately he runs out onto the pitch and he gets knocked down there. 
Back at headquarters, Esposito and Irina stage a fake, largely illegal, good cop, bad cop interrogation at the office. They succeed in bringing him uh, to confess to the murder by taunting him and basically hurting his macho pride. Unfortunately, barely a year later, Gomez is released by Romano, who is now working for a government agency and does it mostly out of spite. Uh, amid increasing political violence, Gomez is set to work as a hitman for the far right wing of the Peronist Party. Peronist, I think that's actually pronounced. Esposito finds Sandoval shot dead upon arriving uh, and Sandoval's in, in his own home. Uh, you see, Sandoval would occasionally pass the night at Esposito's to avoid arguments with his wife about his drinking. Esposito presumes and imagines that Sandoval was killed by hitmen sent after him, maybe even under Romano's orders, and that Sandoval posed as Esposito to save his friend's life. Now, during all this, there's been some romance growing between Esposito and Arena, who by this time has recently married, but now the relationship is cut short by Sandoval's death and Esposito's ultimate decision to just exile himself deep in the countryside. It's at this point that the film returns to 1999 and pretty much stays there. We do learn that after returning to uh, Buenos Aires in 1985, Esposito returned to a uneventful career there until he retired, but this case is still haunting him, and he's determined to exercise the demon by writing down the story in novel form. Esposito drives to Chivalcoy to meet Morales, that's Liliana's husband, who is taken to a quiet life and gradually let go of his obsession with the murder case, by all accounts. Uh, Esposito promises him he's not going to rest until he can put the convict once again in jail. Morales is a little bit hesitant, and he finally confesses to having killed Gomez many years ago. He kidnapped him, he stuffed him into the trunk of the car, then he shot him and got rid of the body. Esposito is obviously disturbed by this, but he just leaves. But on the way back, he starts thinking about things he had heard, and he secretly returns to Morales' house. He sneaks inside and he discovers that Gomez isn't dead after all. Morales built a jail cell in an outbuilding on his property and he's kept Gomez confined for over 24 years as punishment for his wife's death. He kept him alive by feeding him and tending to him, but not once in those 24 years has he let him out or even spoken to him. Morales repeats something he had said to Esposito back in 1974, that instead of a death sentence, he believes the boredom of a meaningless life in jail to be true justice. Esposito just leaves. He pays a visit to uh, Sandoval's mausoleum and leaves flowers at the tomb. Uh, knowing that Gomez will never be a free man again, he finally comes to terms with his own life. He picks up the note that he uh, had written, Temo, which reads, I fear, and realizes there's a missing A. Te amo. It means I love you. So he revisits Irina one more time where she finally, I'm sorry, where he finally responds to her feelings. And despite all the time gone by, she smiles and they shut the door to her office to start over. So this is based on a novel by Eduardo Sacheri, who also shares screenwriting credit with um, Campanella. And I finally got to read the novel earlier this year. And the movie sticks pretty close to the novel, except there are a few key differences. First of all, in the novel, Gomez gets caught on a train by just some random policeman character because of the way that he was acting up. Um, Esposito and Sandoval don't 
end up going following around to soccer matches or anything like that because of what they discover about what Sandoval discovers about um, his passions. So it's just a random thing. Also, in the novel, it is not Irene who taunts Gomez about um, his so-called manhood. It is, in fact, um, Sandoval, Pablo, yeah, Pablo, who is the one taunting him. And then also he dies a natural death in the novel rather than being murdered by presumably Romano's uh, hitmen. And then finally, in the novel, the relationship between Benjamin and Irene was not as built up as it is in the movie. Campanella had directed Ricardo Darren and uh, Soledad Villamil, who, by the way, Irene in 1999 is now a judge, not just a lawyer. Yeah. But anyway, um, he had directed them in a romantic comedy before this. So they obviously were comfortable working with each other in a romantic situation. So their feelings for each other beefed up from the, in the movie from the novel. And the movie's ending is less ambiguous than the novel, even though we don't get to see the two of them consuming or consummating <laughs> their passion, we can pretty much guess that's what's going to happen. Whereas in the novel, Esposito is just going to visit Irene and we're left wondering what's going to happen. So the novel is good. But the movie, I think, is better. And this movie won the Academy Award for Best Non-English Language Film, or as it was called back then, Best Foreign Language Film. And among the finalists in that category that this movie beat were A Prophet, and The White Ribbon, and partisans of both of those movies grumbled somewhat at the choice of The Secret in Their Eyes' best foreign language film, but I happen to like it more than both of those movies. I think this is a terrific movie. It is, and, and you know, you really can't complain about the way this film ended, where I was left kind of ambiguous, because you know what? I thought about this. This is the same ending, really, as the best years of our lives, okay? Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright, they want to get back together. One of them says to the other, this is going to be tough. Who cares, right? End of film, right? Everybody's happy. And it's the same thing here. It's basically, he comes back, he acknowledges that, you know, he's got feelings. She says, this is going to be complicated. And he says, that's okay. Close the door. And as far as we know, happily ever after. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We don't have to have everything spelled out for us. But that's just my attitude. Right. No, that is true. <clears throat> and... um also, I mean, I think the romantic story is handled very well, but at the same time, so is the political story. Mm -hmm. You don't have to know too much about it, 
but this was taking place the 74 parts anyway were taken taking place during Argentina's so-called dirty war which again you have a right-wing dictatorship coming in backed by the US and jailing folks and Gomez is freed even though he murdered and raped this woman and I will say that the scene showing that did border on exploitation for me uh, the most recent time I saw this movie again. But I think Campanella does err on the right side of caution in that, uh, avoiding being too exploitative, even if we're now, well, some of us anyway, are now starting to interrogate scenes of violence against women staged in that way. I do think he ultimately comes down on the right side of not being too exploitative in depicting that. But even though Gomez, you know, raped and murdered this woman, because he's working for the right-wing government, he's able to get a pass on that. And although that's not really spelled out, you do get the gist of that, that probably a lot of torture and raping and murdering was going on at the behest of the right-wing government through this dirty war. And so that left people like Esposito not only frustrated, but also fearful of their own lives, which is why he goes into exile, even though he obviously has feelings for Irene. And Irene brings up, you know, why didn't you ask me to come with you. Mm-hmm. You know, we could have both gone away together, but Esposito, you know, unfortunately was not able to face up to his feelings then, whereas he is by the end of the movie. And the other part of the political part that I have to say came as a complete surprise when I first saw this movie. And I think most of the people in the audience that I saw it with as well, because I actually saw this in the theater. I can't remember if it was before it won or after it won when I saw it. But while you have that line from the husband, uh, Morales, the fact that he feels that life imprisonment is what he wants for Gomez. He wants to make him suffer. I don't think anyone in the theater saw the exact way he was going to carry that out coming. You know, there was a gasp in the theater. I remember when we recognized Gomez at the end. So it was like, wow. Oh, I audibly gasped sitting alone in the living room watching this thing. That was just horrifying. And then once you realize you know, how long he had been in there. And, and, and then it just, and it didn't get any better because, okay, he's been in the jail and da, 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 da. And then Gomez says something like, he hasn't spoken to me. Please tell him to speak to me, please. You know, and he's just begging for the human communication. And almost worse yet is that Esposito doesn't even give it to him. He, he turns to, to, to Morales and says something 
and then he leaves. So, I mean, even even Esposito doesn't say anything to Gomez, and he's just, like, leaving him to this ridiculously empty, meaningless life. It was just, that was just horrifying. It truly was. Right. And although there might have been some of this accomplished by the visual effects that are used in the movie. And I'm going to get back to those in a little bit, but we definitely need to give credit to the makeup artist, the head makeup artist, Mm. Lucila Roborosa and the hairstylist Osvaldo Esperon as well, because with um, Esposito and Irene, even though 25 years have passed for them, they do look a little older, but there's nothing significant. You know, the beard on Esposito and the hair is grayer, but they don't look that much different than they did 25 years earlier. And similarly speaking, the hairstyling is done Mm -hmm. in a little different way on Irina, but it's all done pretty subtly so that, you know, they still have some spark of life left in them. With uh, Gomez and uh, Ricardo, on the other hand, wow. Mm -hmm. You know, you can really see how the years and what has been going on between the two of them have taken their toll on the both of them. So again, all credit to the makeup and hairstyling artists on this movie for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. They did a fantastic... And, and at one point, I, I had a moment of like, did they cast somebody different? No! Oh my gosh, that's the same person. So, yeah, I, I was really, really impressed with, with, uh, with that, that makeup job. All around, right. all around. Right. Now, let's talk about those effects here, uh, because a lot of what was done here was added in digitally by uh, Campanella, who also helped edit the movie. And one of the major obvious effects is that soccer match because that was all done in one shot or maybe done in a way to make it seem like it was all done in one shot. Mm -hmm. Uh, The cinematographer, by the way, is Felix Monti. And it starts off with an overhead shot of the stadium, and then it goes down into the crowd And we see Esposito and Sandoval standing there. And then we pan back and forth among the other crowd members until they spot Gomez. And we spot Gomez for the first time, you know, other than the photographs that he was in, of course. And then it runs through the hallways, the back hallways of the stadium, all through the chase scene. So again, whether that that was all just actually one camera or heavily disguised to make it look like one single camera shot, whatever. It is a terrific 
sequence and a really spellbinding one as well. Yeah, it was really good. And and one of the parts of it that actually really impressed me was it was actually kind of early on in the scene where you've got the camera, it's on Esposito and he's trying to find um, Sandoval. And so he looks off to his, uh, <clears throat> to his, to his right and all you see is the crowd. Then all of a sudden, Sandoval kind of emerges from it. It's like fantastic cinematography going on. And then it swings back over uh, to as, as they're still looking around. So it was like just this like 180 degree, degree turn one way, 180 degrees the other way. And then it kind of follows um, Esposito as, as he starts to lock in on, on uh, Gomez. Really love that work there. Right. Now, most of the visual effects were used for the period stuff because in an interview and also on the commentary on the DVD that I own of this movie, Campanella said that he wanted to avoid the cliche of lighting when it comes to period pieces, that you've got these sepia tones, which we've seen which we have seen used well, most notably, of course, in The Godfather Part Two. But he wanted to show that in our, mem- in our uh, memories, they're often colorful looking. So the flashback, the 1974 scenes are all done more colorfully, whereas the present day scenes or the 1999 scenes, which are still period because this movie, as I said, was made in 2009, uh, they look, I hesitate to use the word drab, but they look a lot more normal, I guess you would say. Well, it's a little bit more of a muted color palette and it's a, and it's a subtle change from one to the other because again, there are times when you do make a quick cut between the present and the past and you you have to look for other cues then yeah right no sepia tones or anything like that you just suddenly realize oh espo's got the he's got the gray hair now so we're back into the present or he's got the dark hair now so he's we're we're in 1974 so there are times when even when the color palette isn't cueing you in it's just the characters and nothing else really that's that's letting you know when you are in the story right now i have to admit uh i have not seen the other argentinian movies that campanella has directed he's worked with darren who i'm going to get to in a little bit a couple times including on the movie that he that he did with uh, Soledad Villamil, The Same Love, The Same Rain, which came out in 1999 and is also a romantic comedy slash drama, as well as a movie that was nominated, also nominated for uh, Oscar for Best Foreign Language Movie, Son of the Bride, which also had Darren in it. Uh, neither of those movies have I seen, nor any of the other Argentinian movies uh, that he directed have I seen of his. I have seen, however, two English-language movies that he directed and, um, in one case, co-wrote, both of them American. The first one being a movie called The Boy Who Cried 
bitch from 1991, which never got any kind of home video release and is only available on YouTube. And then also, and that movie, by the way, has uh, Haley Cross, Karen Young, and before he was the star, Adrian Brody in it. And then the other movie was called Love Walked In, which was based on a novel, I believe, by an Argentinian writer, but which starred Dennis Leary, Terrence Stamp, an actress by the name of Aitana Sanchez Guion. And then also in both movies, our old West Wing friend, Maura Kelly, mm. who has a big, a large role in The Boy Who Cried Bitch and a somewhat smaller role, a non-speaking role, basically, in Love Walked In. And the reason why I bring up both of these movies is twofold. First of all, uh, Love Walked In uses a similar structure to The Secret in Their Eyes and the fact that the main character is writing about writing a novel based on people who are portrayed in the movie. Now, in Love Walked In, the character's supposedly are different than what we see in the movie, although it's clear that one of them is based on the person who's writing it, just as in The Secret in Their Eyes. Uh, Esposito is writing based on what he experienced with this case. The other reason, the other part of why I brought Love Walked In and Boy Who Cried Bitch is that I thought that Boy Who Cried Bitch was, although powerful in some scenes, too overwrought. And <laughs> Love Walked In, although it has some good scenes in it and a good performance by Terrence Stamp, not playing an obvious type of villain here, but Secret in Their Eyes, just as the, the porridge... Uh, <laughs> and the bed and all that were just right for Goldilocks. For me, Campanella was just right in setting the tone for Secret in Their Eyes, whereas the other two movies he had somewhat of a problem with. But Now, now I'm curious to know, did, have you seen the remake that was uh, done by Billy Ray? I was just about to bring that up. Okay. Or a little I, later, maybe. Because I, I haven't seen it, but I'm looking at this cast, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is some cast going on. So was it yes. was it comparable as a movie? Sadly, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> we should mention the cast. Yeah. Shuito uh, Aijafor is playing the Ricardo Darren role. And uh, Nicole Kidman is playing the Soldad Villamil role. And Julia Roberts is playing a composite character. She's playing both the Sandoval role and the um, Ricardo Morales role as well. So in this movie, it's her daughter that gets murdered rather mm. than someone's wife. And Billy Ray, in the movie, tried to make a tie-in to 
that the reason why the murder is covered up here is the fact that the person who committed the murder is an informant for the NSA on terrorist activities, and therefore he gets a pass. And also in this version of the story, uh, Kidman's character also um, taunts the murderer uh, until he, you know, taunts his masculinity until he reveals himself as the murderer when with the, the Shuito Ajafor, just as in the original, he's silent or, you know, congenial, almost apologetic. And that is the best acting in the movie that Kidman does. But overall, it just doesn't hit the same notes. It doesn't get the tone right the way that Campanella does in this version. All right. So fair enough. If you want to see the film, put up with the put up with subtitles. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, now let's talk about Ricardo Darren. When I was first thinking about this series, I did want to uh, pair this movie because I did want to talk about this movie with another Ricardo Darren movie. Uh, Darren, by the way, is arguably the most famous actor to come out of Argentina, even though he has thus far refused to do any English language movies or at least American English language movies because he doesn't want to fall into the usual. Uh, Hollywood Latin American stereotypes. But anyway, the very first thing that I saw him in was a movie called Nine Queens, which is a con artist movie. It's one of the best con artist movies ever made, but unfortunately it's not available to stream and the DVD is out of print at a ridiculously high price. So that put the kibosh on that. And he's also been in other well-known Argentinian movies such as Wild Tales, another movie that got nominated for Best um, Non-English Language Movie at the Oscars, although it lost to my favorite movie of the year that year, Ida from Poland, so I'm not going to complain about that. And he was in a movie directed by Asghar Farhadi and co-starring Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem called Everybody Knows, which is on Netflix, which is also very much worth watching. And Darren is a very subtle actor. I mean, we do see it here in Wild Tales, maybe not so much because his character is more over the top. But here, he just conveys so much with just his eyes or his expression or a look. He doesn't go over the top at all. And he, he in many ways, helps anchor this movie. Yeah, I, I, I like the, the, the approach that he has. He's, he's serious when he needs to be. He's a little bit lighter when he needs to be. He's mostly serious, but, but he, he can do the, the lighter stuff. You see that especially like in, in the 74, and, and I kind of wanted to talk about this a little bit, is the, uh, getting back to that relationship between him and Irina and, and where he is, it's like this kind of an unrequited love thing going on at first. And in fact, there is a scene early on where 
Irina comes into the room and it's Sandoval who greets her and he says something like, I, I can't remember exactly, it was like one of those angel fell from heaven sort of sort of lines and she buys into it, you know, and, and, and he's like, I can't do that. How do you do that? How do you come up with it? So I've been thinking about it for 45 minutes waiting for her to come into the room and I still couldn't come up with anything. And, and just the way he, he, he plays that kind of thing. And, but that also becomes part of really where the title of the film comes in because, and I know that the, the Campanella wasn't really thrilled with, with the way the title translated, but it works out very well because the fact is like everybody, well, nearly everybody in this film has some kind of secret going on. And you do see that conveyed through the expressions that they are doing specifically with their eyes, whether it's arena or Esposito or, Sandovali or, 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 you know, it doesn't matter who everybody seems to like have something else going on behind, behind their look. So, um, it's, it's a very, very apt title in that respect, even though part of what it's really referring to is the way Gomez is looking at Liliana in the photos. And that was the key to figuring out that this is a potential suspect. Right. Now, Villarreal is also very good as Irene. Yeah. And although my knowledge of Argentinian cinema is limited, unfortunately, apparently uh, Guillermo Franchella, who plays Sandoval, was best known at the time as a comic actor. And he even normally has a mustache that Campanella made him shave off for this movie. And while he does bring the comic relief to the movie uh, with the whole sad drunk routine that he plays, or maybe more pathetic than sad at times, you know, he also brings out the drama in the role very well also. Yeah, he does. The, the the scene where he gets killed, you know, you can you can see again. There's there's more going on. Like we can see, kind of like he's looking at things, and you know, and and we're the, and we're trying to pick up on on what he's doing and what he's trying to to convey, and it's it works out really really well. And also the the scene in the bar where he basically breaks the code behind the letters, as it were. Um, and, and trying to explain the whole thing about the passion and how, how, how men change this, they can change that, they can change the other thing, they can't change the passion, and drags him over to the, who was, it was an accountant or something, right? Who was the, who was the, like that, who was like yeah. a, this Uber fan who was this fan of the team from like a million years ago. And even though the team had had like nine bad years in a row, he's like, hey, once you're a fan, you're always a fan. And, and so the two yeah, of them which, together uh, had a nice chemistry going on. Which uh, plenty of Americans can relate to that. American sports fans, yeah. you know. Um, I remember an article in American American Film Magazine back when they put one out um, that the guy was uh, doing an article about sports movies, his favorite sports movies available at the time on VHS, and he said that the one. Th- one thing that all sports fans have in common is that they are masochists. (laughs) And uh, he gave us an example that there was an experiment about um, 
mice and people watching the Cleveland Indians. This is before they won the World Series. And he said the mice gave up rooting for the Indians way back <laughs> 30 decades ago, but the humans, not so much. But yes, uh, sports fans anywhere across the globe are masochists in that same way. And there, many of them are also as uh, trivia-obsessed as uh, the ones depicted here as well. Um, is there anything else that you want to bring up? I know you said you had something to tie this together with State of Siege. I did, but before I do that, I'm going to mention that, you know, this is the second episode that we have done which is a foreign, which has a foreign language film and has the Spanish word for eyes in its original title. I just found that kind of interesting. Yes, uh, that's true. Because we did open your eyes way back when. Um, but but the other thing is that Secret in Their Eyes would have been a really a good title for either one of these films because there were so many scenes in State of Siege where we would take a moment and the camera would close in and tighten up on the face, and particularly the eyes of various characters, whether it was Hugo or or as we or 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 um um or Santore or you know and anybody. It, it was like there were many many times, and even one of the closing shots was zooming in on one of the insurgents and his eyes as he's watching the American come off the plane. So I I just found that just an interesting thing that that you know what in both of these films. There are many characters who had a secret in their eyes. So this would have been a great title either way around. No, that's true. And then one other thing <laughs> that I just remembered to mention is that like Costa Gavras, Campanella is using, you know, um, Hollywood techniques or, you know, mainstream techniques to tell a political story. And does it very well. And even with scenes that could seem cliche, but are carried off, such as the train station goodbye when Esposito leaves in 1974 between him and Irene, which at first when we see it, it's all out of focus mm -hmm. because he's... Right, it's clear he's writing it down, and then he dismisses that. Ah, that's too melodramatic. And then we finally see it play out, and then Irina reads it, and she agrees it's melodramatic. But by the time we see it in the movie, the passions have been built up, even though they're done in such a subtle way which is comparable to another movie that we talked about, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the hidden passions between Michelle Yeoh and Shaolin Fat's characters in that movie, and done just as effectively here as well. So even though it is a cliche and a bit of melodramatic license, but we buy it. Yeah, we do. But, but the other thing is, if I remember correctly, when she reads the first draft of the story and she gets to the part with the train, she's like, I don't remember it that way, you know? And, and sure enough, what we get is a very different view of what happened where I, if I remember correctly at the beginning of the film, when he's trying to relate the story, it's one of these things where she starts to break down and run after the train and he goes right. to the back of it, to watching her running off the platform. And 
when we see it actually happen in 1974, it's it's much different where they do kind of watch each other through the window, but nobody's really moving from the place they're in. No, that's true, but you still get the feelings of sorrow. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But but it's definitely a different brand of melodrama going on there, and one is right. way more cliched than the other. Yes. So, um, as I alluded to, both of these are available on DVD. State of Siege is a Criterion edition. Secret in Their Eyes is just a regular edition. But if you prefer to stream State of Siege, you can stream um, on the Criterion channel if you subscribe. You can also rent or buy it through Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, Vudu, or YouTube. Whereas for The Secret in Their Eyes, that is available to stream if you subscribe to DirecTV, but it's available to rent or buy through Amazon, Google Play, and most other streaming services. Okay, cool. And what's coming up next time around? Well, next time we're going to get off the soapbox and we're going to talk about two movies that are... Uh, for lack of a better term, mind screw movies uh, dealing with psychological transference from 1966, although it was released in 1967, Persona, written and directed by Ingmar Bergman, and from 1970, although it was actually made in 1968 and held up for release for a couple of years, Performance, which was co-directed by Donald Camel, who also wrote the screenplay, and Nicholas Rogue. Uh, both movies are available on DVD, Persona in Criterion, uh, Performance, just a regular DVD. But again, if you prefer to stream, Persona is available to stream if you subscribe to either the Criterion channel or HBO Max. Uh, you can also rent or buy it through Amazon and Apple TV only, whereas Performance, as we're recording this, is available to stream through the Criterion channel as well, though that may not be the case when this finally airs. But you can rent or buy it through most uh, streaming services such as Amazon Apple TV and Google Play. And if you have a question or comment on any of our episodes, we have a Facebook page. And you can also comment on our website through each individual episode, or you can shoot us an email through wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com. And myself, Sean Gallagher, I am also on Facebook. And how about you, Claude? Well, you can also find me on the Book of Face under my own name. Uh, don't get it confused with my dad because he's got the same names. And you can also check out my other podcast, How Good It Is, at howgooditis.com. Okay, so thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Rebecca, please take us away. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. 
Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. 